Hi, this is Karen. I'm calling in with my story for the Blackfishing the IUD podcast. I had the IUD in for six days, and now I have rheumatoid arthritis, which it seemed to trigger. Um, and then I wrote this book about it, and now we're doing this awesome podcast. It's really exciting. Okay, bye. Welcome to Blackfishing the IUD, the podcast. I'm Karen Balin, author of a book called Blackfishing the IUD, newly out with Wolfman Books. Blackfishing the IUD is a collaboratively written memoir about reproductive health and the IUD, gendered medical gaslighting, and activism in the chronic illness community. I am considering the copper IUD's role in triggering my sudden onset of rheumatoid arthritis, and I share research and patient testimonies that suggest the copper IUD is actually sickening quite a lot of women in a few different ways. On this podcast, you'll hear from authors and activists and patients who have been deeply affected by the IUD or by gendered medical gaslighting in general. I am not a doctor, and neither are any of my guests, so any healing strategies talked about here should not be taken as medical advice. Hey, Claire. Hey, how are you? I'm well. How are you doing? Doing well. So tell us about who you got to talk with for this episode. Oh, okay. So I reached Tyrese Coleman. She works as an attorney, and she's also an accomplished writer. Her first book of essays, How to Sit, came out in 2018. It was quickly nominated for a Penn Open Book Award. It's really phenomenal. Uh, She writes about poverty and the South, and then kind of more particular to my interests, about negotiating medical care as a woman and then outside of my experience as a black woman. It was so fascinating to talk to her. I just loved every minute of it. She is super, she has like a full life and you're going to hear it in this episode. Um, She is talking to me amidst her children, you know, amidst childcare and other stuff she has going on. So there's going to be like that documentary feel to this episode. And I think it's, it's going to be fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, great. And is there something particular about Tyrese's work or writing that you wanted to talk with her about? Yeah, I mean, it's a really recurring theme in a lot of the work that I've read of hers, um, which is primarily in her book, How to Sit. Uh, But then I also came across this amazing essay. It's in a recent Black Warrior review. It's called Speculum. And that was, for me, the moment when I thought, I've got to talk to her. I really hope she'll talk to me. Um, So Speculum is about Marion Sims, who is the very complicated, very troubling father of modern gynecology. And he's sort of credited with inventing the speculum, the modern version of the speculum as we know and use it today. But, you know, her piece is about the captive enslaved women that this guy experimented tirelessly on. So I won't say too much more about that because Tyrese is going to contextualize it. But, um, you know, I didn't know about this history and it really, really amazed me. I'm just so glad she's doing this work. Yes, definitely. I did not know anything about that history either. So let's listen to your conversation with Tyrese. 
It starts off with Tyrese reading from her essay, Speculum, a section that brings that troubling history of gynecology into the present. innocuous on its own, the speculum's metal is more rigid, it seems, once inserted into my flesh. I am afraid to move. Like a knife has safely passed through my skin, if I shift an inch, it could mortally wound. The cold always surprises me, even when it's been warmed, even when it isn't metal at all, but plastic and disposable. The click is unsettling too. Each notch, a vibration, a stretch. Click, click, click. Expanded the device precariously poised in a place I cannot see without a mirror. My muscles shake with the effort of not pushing it out. My instinct is to push it out. With this, some stranger experiences the spectacle of my reproductive anatomy. What does he see? Now nothing is hidden. Those buried organs, the subject of a millennia of poetry. Its closure and subsequent sexual opening compared to a rose in bloom. A bud encased, a velvety red sliver revealed within its folds. The ancient Greek poet Sappho wrote, Speechless I gaze the flame within. And indeed, under the ashes of Pompeii and Herculeum, the first instruments of female examination were discovered, in use since around 79 CE. This device resembled a protractor compass attached to a wine cork, and I am glad never to have seen it in use. Is there any beauty in this kind of opening? Any poetry to devise from prying wide of flowers stretching the petals apart? Anything could happen in this position. Someone could walk in and see every piece of me without my consent. Someone could hold or strap me down and force me to endure procedures I do not want. Insert something in me I do not want. Someone could cut me over and over again, make me suffer operations I do not need. They could continuously examine me, feel and prod around inside me, dwindling my senses and desire to fight. So when I'm forced to, I don't know how. So much forcing. It is the forcing I hate the most. My body is forced open. I am forced to lie in a particular position, heels and stirrups, but at the edge of the table. I'm forced to either close my eyes or look up. I do a combo of both. On the ceiling is a poster reproduction of Raphael's angels from the Sistine Chapel. I am forced to look at it. The two little white babies with wings and impatient expressions gaze off into the heavens. Their rosy cheeks, their rolling eyes dismiss my discomfort. Such a lack of respect, even the angels cannot acknowledge me. This vision of divine white fertility mocks my black and exposed body. I am trapped, again forced to confront the Christian ideal of the female purpose, forced to accept this expectation upon my body. I am indignant despite being Christian, despite having children. I think, are the angels dead? What if I had lost a child? What if I were infertile? What if I had cancer or a sexually transmitted disease? How did this poster slip by the female nurses and doctors who work here? Are they not also forced to lie on this table or any other table and witness the ceiling of derisive angels? I want to jump up, pull it down, rip their faces apart. But the device is in me, and if I move, the pain will kill. In this position, I cannot be angry. In this position, I cannot react. In this position, I have no agency. In this position, I am powerless. 
This lack of control, so intense, it feels like a metaphor. Hi. <laughs> Hi, Tyrese. How are you? Good. How are you? Very good. Thank you for having this conversation with me. Uh, no problem. Yeah, so in preparation, I've just sort of been poring over your work and particularly thinking about it in terms of the, just the way that it really tangles with the medical system in a bunch of different ways. So I'm thinking about your essay, Speculum, and it seems that a really generative document for this essay was this study from the University of Virginia and just reading directly from your, your writing, you write in Speculum, the study found that 58% of the participants with a medical background thought mm -hmm. Black people had thicker skin yeah. than white. The Virginia study really kind of, it sort of confirmed what I thought in my mind was happening. And, I, you know, growing up in the South and growing up in a small town, these myths about Black people are not unheard of. I remember hearing as a little kid things like Black people have tails <laughs> or white kids wondering if my blood was Black. These myths about Black people in general that sort of uh, took us out of uh, the realm of humanity, I feel like when you're a medical professional, you know, you have to have some basis in reality and, and understanding of human physiology that proves that these things aren't true, right? Is affirming to me in some ways to read that study and see, oh, these are the same things that these little kids were saying to me when I was growing up about Black people. And that they don't, and that even though you have some basis, you know, you have an education that to you otherwise you still have so much internalized racism that you believe black bodies are actually different yeah one piece that came out in 2016 that i've used as a reference is this document that the cdc actually put out led by this woman cynthia prather the study concluded that the historical effect and cumulative effect of racism affects the reproductive health of Black women. And I'll just read from it a little bit. She writes, many studies suggest that African-American women are more likely than white women to experience discrimination, receive substandard medical care, and undergo unnecessary surgeries such as hysterectomies. These inequities are independent of socioeconomic status and access to quality medical care. Furthermore, at equal levels of socioeconomic status, insurance coverage, and healthcare access, African Americans receive lower quality medical care than white Americans. This suggests that race based mistreatment may underline racial disparities in sexual and reproductive health. You know, when you think of this idea that Black people have thicker skin, and we're not talking about like euphemism, you know, it, to be thick skinned. We're talking about actual thicker skin. It's like, how do you as a as a learned individual 
at least today in today's age, uh, that, was, that study was like 2016. So in 2016, you actually believe that there that a whole race of people have thicker skin than other people. Like it's mind boggling. <laughs> I don't <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. Like you know, and I guess it, it does inform how we are treated. But it's not just that. It's it's the it's the feeling of going to an emergency room and having complaints of pain and being treated as if you're a junkie looking for medication. So it's not just these irrational yeah. um, myths about Black people being closer to monkeys or all these uh, leftovers from eugenics that, <laughs> that kind of are still creeping out in 2019 but also those thoughts about the racism that affects our current lifestyles and all of that and drugs and the same stereotypes of of the welfare queen and 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 all those other things that sort of affect how black women are seen in our day-to-day lives it's all trickle down it's all the same thing yeah i'm just thinking about speculum your essay and that you're making these connections really strongly and explicitly. Um, And I want to ask you about that in these sort of italicized sections where you're going back to Lucy's story and you say, uh, witch, they said, fish, they yelled, worthless, they called her, and a worthless mule might as well be a dead one. And this is an essay where you're in italicized sections talking about Lucy and in other sections talking very much in a contemporary mode about some of um, your own experiences in the contemporary medical system. But we probably have to take this a step back or so. And maybe um, I should ask you, who is Marion Sims and, and who is Lucy? So Marion Sims is, he's a doctor from the... 19th century, who is the grandfather of gynecology. He invented sort of the modern iteration of the speculum. And he is actually a very complicated historical figure. You'll find statues of him throughout the country. There have recently been, probably last year, lots of protests against those statues. Um, But he was a physician in Georgia and Alabama and New York who was a reluctant gynecologist and actually a reluctant doctor. Um, But he, I read his autobiography and he was so full of white male confidence that he kind of felt like, oh, well, I I could be a doctor. And so he kind of stumbled upon the idea of the speculum by actually treating a woman, a white woman who had fallen from her horse and had dislocated her uterus. And he had previously had a bunch of uh, slave owners who had female slaves who were dealing with uh, what's called a, a vaginal fistula, which is like a hole that's created between the organs of the uterus and, and the bladder during childbirth um, that actually is a significant cause of death, of being ostracized in a lot of uh, countries with lack of available health care. And at the time was was a big deal because there was no way of fixing it. There was no way of curing it. So this white woman had fallen from a horse. 
she dislocated her uterus and he had some idea to get her on all fours and stick his fingers inside of her and open up the airway. The way he describes it, almost like he discovered fire. Apparently, there was sort of like a whooshing <laughs> and everything sort of realigned itself. Right. So he had used Oon and realized that, it, that these spoons sort of allowed him to open up the vagina in a way to access these organs. And so once he had used those spoons, he, he already had these slaves at his house that some slave owners had left with him to take care of. The way it's described in his book, I imagine it like some kind of sheriff mounting his horse and like, you know, marching in to save the day and like, by God, I'm going to kill these people. <laughs> and so, but he yeah. had these like um, medical interns that they sort of started a hospital dedicated to operating and experimenting on slave women. And he had, I want to say like between 10 and 11 Black women sort of living at his house that he would operate on and experiment on. And they all kind of suffer from different gynecological ailments, but mostly this vaginal fistula. And Lucy, Arnaka, Betsy, and one other slave were like the main ones that he discussed in his book that he um, operated on over 30 some odd times. There was no anesthesia. There was no consent. He would continuously use, you know, his new invention and try and fix their fistula. And on one hand, when you're reading this account, you see how he has sort of built himself up to be iconic master of the medical profession. And he eventually does do something that saves millions of lives, right? But in doing so, he took Black women and he mutilated them and he experimented on them and he treated them as if they weren't actual human beings, but just bodies or cadavers. At some point, he lost his interns because none of his experiments were working. They all went on for much longer than, I guess, the medical profession at the time was comfortable with. You know, they, they were behind him at first because he had had some early success, but the sutures fell apart. And so they kind of deemed him a hack. So he lost all his support. And I don't know, I, I imagine that if, if I were Lucy, I would be assisting him, not so much because of the fact that I believed he could cure me, but because I really had no other choice. I had to have the belief that something could get better. And if I didn't do anything or participate in making the situation better, then I was just going to continue to suffer with this man who was so hell-bent on making a name for himself that he sacrificed my body to do so, right? So at some point, Lucy and Betsy and all of them sort of became his nurses and his uh, medical oh, wow. assistants in helping one another um, operate on one another. So oh, um, it's a very thick and complicated story. It's a multifaceted situation. In some respects, he 
certainly does deserve the fame that he received. But in a lot of respects, that fame is not all his to have. That recognition is not all his to have. But I felt like, you know, when I wrote Speculum, no one knows about these women other than what's in his book. I haven't been able to find any other information about who they were absent what Marion Sims wrote. And in my mind, it's just like mm. it's just like any other situation where where black women um, are invisible and yet we are vital to the story and vital to the outcome. We're the central parts of the story, yet we have no voice in the telling of that story. And so it was important to me to give Lucy a voice because I have often felt voiceless in situations with medical professionals. When we began working on this podcast, we set up a hotline and asked people to call in and leave messages with their experiences in the doctor's office. So we'll take a quick break and listen to a doctor's note. So I'm trans and I was going to a community clinic that was on the outskirts of a gayer queer district in town. And my gender marker changed in my notes. I went from being a woman who had sex with women to being listed as a man that slept with men and women. And all of a sudden, every time I went to the doctor, they got really concerned about STIs. Every time I came in for anything, they wanted to run a whole bit of STI testing. And I came in one day and I was sick. I was pretty sick and I had a fever and everything. And I got to the exam room and the doctor took one look at me and prodded my lymph nodes and said, oh, yeah, these are really swollen. I think you might have AIDS. I had strep. <laughs> uh, so that's my story about new doctors working at a queer clinic being paranoid. Good luck with the podcast, y'all. And now back to my conversation with Tyrese. So I, I think about the history that you're talking about. It's like, how can you not go into a doctor's office and particularly a gynecologist's office without this amazing kind of burden of this amazing history that you have to take into that office? I mean, how could you not? Right. I mean, it's it's frustrating because these are our this is my life. This is her life. This is your life. These are these are our. This is we are. This is not a game, right? I was in an accident, in a car accident. And so I had a herniation that was impinging on my L4, L5 nerve, like to the point where the, I can't remember the actual term, I'm sorry, but whatever is inside of your disc, all of it came out. <laughs> it was, um, and it was on my spinal cord. 
And so, you know, I, yeah. I at the time I was I think I was around 30, 31. And, and so I went to see this doctor. It was a young white guy. And at first it was, you know, this is, I'm just in pain, doing the whole uh, accident pain management thing where you go to the ortho and then you go to physical therapy. Got to the point where this, I had started developing sciatica. It got to the point where my sciatica was so bad that I had gotten down on the floor to do exercises that I had learned in physical therapy and I couldn't back up and I had to call an ambulance and they had to like carry me down the stairs. And um, it was one of the most embarrassing and the most vulnerable I have ever been in my life. I get to the hospital and they give me significant pain medication and I'm released and they, I still can't walk. I still can't do anything. I go to the same orthopedic. He tells me I have bursitis of the hip. I'm not a doctor. So I'm like, okay, I guess that's what I have. (laughs) So I'm going to PT. I still have pain. And then I have another flare where I'm doing the exercises they tell me to do, but I again, can't get off the floor. So again, I get taken to the emergency room. This time, there's an emergency room doctor who, again, thinks that I'm some junkie. And I'm like crying and pain. And my husband literally has to threaten the doctor with physical violence (laughs) in order to get him to actually take care of of me. So they gave me a walker and I'm 31 walking around with a walker and I go to my ortho with the walker and he still was like not getting the fact that I was using a walker to get around because I was in so much that I couldn't walk and there was no urgency in his mind about the fact that I needed to get this pain situation taken care of. So he again had talked about bursitis and I was like, nah, this is not what this is. And so then he ordered the MRI. And when I went back after the MRI, it was, he was like, oh, you need surgery like right now. <laughs> and I'm, this should not have happened. This, this long extended period of time where I have gone to the emergency room twice now. I've been probably going to physical therapy for like at least two to three months and taking time for my job, going to my job with the walker, being, you know, like I said, admitted to the hospital, um, incurring those expenses. And now you're telling me I need to have um, immediate emergency surgery because you realize that my, that the dis- herniation is so severe that it's causing this level of sciatica. Like I shouldn't have to go through all that. I later found out like after the surgery that he had took a picture of the disc bulge while he was operating and texted it to another surgeon. Um, sort of boasting about how big my bulge was and how how he was basically he was bragging about uh, having a patient with my level of severity and that he you know that he fixed it 
or, or whatever. Um, sort of like my dick is bigger than yours. So like, you know, and using my my pain to boast to another doctor. Like I learned about that afterwards. So like, and to this day, my back is not great. Oh, I have pain all the time. And luckily that doctor left and moved to California or something. And I inherited another doctor who's a man of color. It's it's almost a, a complete 180 difference in how he treats me versus how I was treated by this white doctor, even though he was a young man. You know, this doctor, he hasn't said one thing about my weight. So like he, the way that he sort of spoke to me with a level of intelligence that I did not previously receive from other doctor is, is very shocking in a lot of ways. And I find that when my doctor is a person of color, this is the case. Not all the time. Definitely not all the time. But for the most part, when my doctor has been someone of color, the level of treatment has been significantly better. And that is so relieving and also can be so revealing of what you've been through once you get treated in this different way. It's like this amazing moment. And and what's interesting to me, I mean, that's such a horrific thing to find out that your doctor was sort of both using your bones <laughs> and the severity of your situation to boast when he was so, you know, implicated in that severity. It's so, um, that's such a nasty thing to learn. This complete ignoring of pain, um, denying of pain, you know, inability to believe in that pain, while at the same time, a sort of complete belief in your ability to bear pain and that pain being okay. I mean, to see you in a walker and to um, just be comfortable with you bearing, bearing what you're bearing. Right. But, you know... (laughs) I mean, if we really want to get deep about it, I mean, how different is that from watching people, watching slaves in a field all day long, picking cotton or or whatever, being um, or or whipping those individuals or or whatever, bearing witness to such cruelty and then just letting it happen. Like, it's shocking, but not shocking at the level of like disassociation certain people can have when it comes to putting their own understanding of things ahead of what they actually say. Because it's 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 a lack of empathy, right? It's a lack of being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes because for whatever reason you are unable to see yourself as anything like that individual. And that and that is where those those old stereotypes and that 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 study from from UVA comes from. You know, these people don't see themselves like like they it is it is as if the black race is a totally different genus of the of the human race. Like we're like as if we're just completely uh, a subsection of the human race. And so when you have that sort of blocker in your mind, well, this person is, is a person, but they're not a person like I am a person, then, you know, their suffering is not going to really affect how you act if you are someone in that position to help. So I wanted to read a short section from this essay you wrote called Her 600-Pound Life on Being a Medical Slave. And you write, the Black patient experience is about that humbleness, anger, humiliation of taking a human being who is incapable of fighting for herself 
physically, socially, economically, politically, and lowering her more and more so that she now wants to be so low she is beneath the earth. It is about removing all power, even the little power granted to a black mama in this world and forcing her to beg for forgiveness, forcing her to beg and justify her existence. It is about forcing her to beg for treatment. Oh, that's a very powerful part of that essay. I was curious if maybe you could talk a little bit about this. Even just the title is so striking on being a medical slave. What do you mean by that? And I was also curious about this really striking part where you talk about forcing her to beg for forgiveness. That is a really interesting, kind of shocking and complicated thing. And I was wondering if you could talk about that, the use of that word forgiveness there. Forgiveness, the feeling that we as patients, I know sometimes I've felt, and I don't know about you, but for me, I felt like I've gone to the doctor and though it is their job to see me, it's as if I'm interrupting their lives or bothering them in some way from my mere existence. Also in terms of the idea that much of what ails, at least Black women, because that's the only perspective I can really speak from, much of what ails us as a community are things that are perceived to be self-induced. So for example, you know, in that essay, I'm speaking about a woman who was on the show, My 600 Pound Life, and she was morbidly obese to the point where she had to be carried out of her home by rescue workers. And when she got in front of the man who's supposed to be helping her, he berated her. And this woman was, you know, I was watching the show and this woman was talking about how she wanted to kill herself. And she kept sort of pleading for the doctor to believe her. Like, and she may not have said it in those terms, but she kept saying, I want to kill myself. I want to die. I want to die. And the doctor kept saying, you're lying. You're lying. How do you you tell someone that they're lying about the fact that they want to kill themselves? He basically was trying to say that she was being dramatic. If I were this woman who ate in order to forget the traumas of her life, and I'm sitting here desperately pleading with someone and telling them that I want to kill myself, and they don't believe me, and they're telling me I'm I'm lying, that I'm like I, I just that to me was such a profound example of of what we're both talking about, you know. Uh, one actually denying your emotional state, your emotional desperation. And at that point, she, that was as desperate as you can get, right? I like, that is, that is the, the bottom that a person can go. And for him to still say, I don't believe you, I, I don't know what else she could do. What else, what else can she say or do? What else how else are we supposed to convince these people that we that what we're saying is truthful? I, I don't know. 
and it makes you feel like you're crazy. And I watched and felt like he was being so dismissive of her interior thoughts and feelings and not examining the the way she got there in the first place, not examining why someone would let their body get so out of control that it was just like she is a human being who is of the lowest sort. And when you're in a position like that, I imagine that you want to apologize for your mere existence, especially when you're in a position where you need help to get out of it. Our bodies are the only things we have. (laughs) I mean, it's the thing that we have to keep most precious to us because it's where our, our lives come from. I mean, we're on this earth inside our bodies, you know, without it, we're dead. So like, I feel like if I were a doctor, it would be hard for me to have that level of responsibility, right? To be able to look at my patients and not judge them, but also have their interests in mind, but also be able to do my job. However, I will say in terms of like doctors in general, there is much more to learn in terms of like how to relate, especially Black women and their problems, their bodies, and the things that are intergenerational that affect us. Thank you so much, Tyrese. This was a wonderful conversation. And I'm just looking forward to sharing it and sharing this You're perspective as part of, part of this podcast. All right, bye. <laughs> This podcast is produced by Wolfman Books with executive producer Claire Mullen. Our production team includes Samantha Kerr, Madeline McConnell, Brianna McNamara, Allison O'Keefe, Gerald Petrozella, Emily Senkowitz, and Hannah Snow. Thank you to all at Wolfman, Justin Carter, Jacob Kahn, Lucasa Bromfman-Verissimo, Tara Marsden, Gabriel Ramirez, and Samantha Espinoza. Our theme song is Abuse of Time by Vivid Windows, and Matt Carney has provided instrumentals. A special thanks to all of our podcast participants and everyone who called and left a message sharing your stories.